It's a lot of fun. Keep it fun. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the UK Packers podcast. As usual, I'm your host at DDDNFL on Twitter and, of course, follow the group at UK Packers. And this one is a clanger. This one is fantastic. Do you ever get a book that you really, really loved and you always wish that you could talk to and, and, and pick the author's brain? This is happening live on the podcast. To join me, and I'm very privileged, is a man called Ralph Hickok, and he's the author of Vagabond Halfback, the saga of Johnny Blood McNally, one of the most colourful characters in the world of NFL. And Ralph, how are you today, my friend? Oh, I'm pretty well, thank you. It's good, good to have you on. Um, Ralph, I'm not good with American accents, um, but I believe that you don't live in Green Bay now. But it's certainly something that... You know, you're a Green Bay boy. You wrote this excellent book, and I, I'd strongly recommend people go out and get it. Uh, the Vagabond Halfback. Uh, Ralph is not asking me to say this. I, I went strolling through the internet to find Ralph to try pull him onto the podcast, and he agreed to come on the saga of Johnny Blood McNally. Fascinating story. But, uh, Ralph, I guess before we get into Johnny Blood and, you know, to who he was as a man and how much time you spent with him and, and all of these other questions that are just burning inside me as I read the book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're a Green Bay boy. Harvard educated, and your dad had pretty close ties to the Packers. Can you flesh out that story for us a little bit? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, I, I basically grew up in Green Bay, went to uh, uh, just about all my uh, pre-college education was there. And uh, my dad was the news editor of the Green Bay Press-Gazette, and uh, he was also the official scorer for the Packers. So... Just about every home game, starting when I was eight years old till I went off to college, I, I was in the press box uh, with him. I helped uh, helped him do the play-by-play and statistics. I did stuff like, you know, uh, tell him who made the tackle on such and such a play. And and uh, in that in that process, I uh, I got to meet a lot of former players. You know, guys who were scouts, broadcasters. And uh, uh, former players, former coaches who talked about the, the the great Packer players of the past, and the one who just really stood out to me was the guy called Johnny Blood. You know? And um, so when I, I think when I was I was probably about twelve or thirteen, I kind of knew I wanted to be a writer when I grew up, and. I, just, I said to myself at some point, you know, if nobody else does it before I get around, I'm going to write a biography of this guy. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that to you, though, Ralph. I mean, out of all the players and ex-players that you would have been around, of all of the great Packers of that era, Don Hudson being an absolute personal favorite of mine, I think he's the best NFL player. Not Never mind that he's position or he's era. I just think he was a trailblazer. But was it the kind of the funny, hilarious, uh, the charisma style stories, the, you know, the drunken antics that drew you to Johnny Blood? Or was it more cerebral where you looked at his playing career as well? Or was it the marrying of the two of those aspects that kind of really intrigued you about him? Yeah, I, I think it was really the combination of the two that he he was a, a great you know football player. He was a guy who was known for coming up with the, the big play when mm. it was really needed. But uh, but also I heard a lot about how how smart he was. Uh, 
yeah. and uh, what and what a character he was. So it just seemed to me that this this is a case where you don't just write about the football player; you write about the person, you know, because he's an, an interesting personality. And did you ever have that vision of actually meeting the man? And I mean, because we all have hopes and dreams, right? And you say you were thirteen, and and you went off to Harvard, let's say. So you're in Harvard, uh, you major in English, uh, you have some pretty high profile jobs, you know, in journalism and marketing. Did you ever envision to become this sort of, because you're a pillar and you've been awarded many, many times. And, you know, before we come on the podcast, you told me about a pretty prestigious award that you're after winning. You know, was that always there? Were you always going to write those sports books or did it all kind of come a, a bit organically to you? Uh, I always kind of had the Johnny Blood book at the back of my mind, yes, and and I didn't ex- I'm a, I didn't expect to become a sports historian. <laughs> yeah. That that was pretty much an accident. Uh, but yeah, I I always had the and uh, when when my first book was published, uh, really almost immediately after it was published, I did I said to myself, okay, now I've got some credentials, I can get in touch with him. And, yeah. Uh, and before we jump in, because I find your first meeting with Johnny Blood really sets up the tone for the book because you sort of get instantly of just what of what a sort of guy from left field this guy is. He doesn't operate the way normal people operate, the way he goes about his business. But your book, The Saga of Johnny Blood, uh, McNally, uh, you say in your book that after you're going through, you know, all of these stories and spending all his time with him, he sent you a letter and said that he did not want you to release the book when he was alive. Um, That's correct. Yeah. And I mean, I've I heard about your book before from Cliff Crystal in an article on Packers.com. And there was also an author called Dennis Gullickson who relied heavily on your unpublished manuscript. Can you give us sort of a taste of how exactly that came about, that it wasn't published, but people tended to have an awful lot of access to it? Uh, yeah, uh, I, uh, as you said, he, he told me uh, this was in 1975 or maybe 1976. He uh uh, he said he did not want the book published until after his death, and so you know, obviously, I, I went along with that. I had, uh, um, so uh, John died in, uh, on Thanksgiving Day, 1985, which was, uh, I, as I recall, the day after his birthday. Yeah. And so I reworked the manuscript a little bit, and I sent it to my agent, Max Gartenberg, in New York, and. Um, uh, Max simply couldn't sell it. He couldn't find a publisher who was interested in it. And the the basic reason, I mean, the feedback I got from these publishers was that, well, yeah, you know, he didn't play for a New York team. He didn't play for the Giants or the Jets. So uh, who who cares, you know? Yeah. And so uh, I, I can't remember how many publishers Max submitted it to, but it was a lot. And... Uh, uh, so finally, he just sent the manuscript back to me, and he said, I'm sorry, you know, no, no, just can't get any interest. So I put it aside for a long time. And a few years ago, I uh, I was asked to be the guest speaker at my high school reunion in Green Bay, Green Bay West. Uh, whoop, how did I, that's a uh, slip, Green Bay East High, <laughs> uh, which was the high school of Curly Lambeau, let yeah. me add. And... Uh, uh, so I gave. I was told I could talk about anything I wanted to. So I spoke about uh, Johnny Blood, about my experiences with him. And after the talk, several classmates uh, said to me, "Well, wh- where's the book?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, that's a pretty good question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it hasn't been published." <laughs> uh, 
now, in the meantime, somewhere along the line, the the Packer Hall of Fame had expressed an interest in, in publishing it. Um, so I gave them, I think I gave them two manuscripts, actually. And after a period of time, they decided that they didn't want to get into the publishing business. But those manuscripts remained in the in the Hall of Fame for, and and quite a few people have consulted them through the years. Uh, but then when you know when my classmates asked me where where is the book, I said, well, now I can do it myself. I don't have to depend on a publisher in New York. So I uh, I published it myself through uh, Amazon. Uh, create space well i'll tell you what it's it's a fascinating read and it's quite shocking to hear that no one wanted to buy it but i guess we have to put ourselves in you know in that era so back you know in the 80s the packers were not a very good team you know what was the appetite for stuff back then um i don't know if you want to look at economic reasons as well people had an awful lot to deal with back in the 80s you know the recessionary period certainly over here was insane but you know from reading the book i'll tell you what ralph um i like to read a lot and I read all different types of books or whatever. And the odd time I, I work from home, uh, luckily enough, but the odd time I have to go into the office in Dublin. This is an incredibly boring story. It's n- not a patch on yours. But I, I when I bought your book, I was on the train and on the way there and on the way back, I almost missed my stop twice because I was so engrossed in the book uh, and reading it that I it was only by chance that when the doors opened and a breeze came in that I lifted my head from the book and realized I should be out there on the platform right now and just get out before the doors closed. So, you know, to anybody listening to it, it really doesn't marry the two that, that, you know, it didn't get published versus the quality of the book because it is fantastic. It's absolutely great stuff. But let me just bring it back then to that. So you have your credentials, you have one book written. You think now is the time that you're going to approach uh, Johnny Blood. I'm guessing he was kind of a hero of yours. You were very intrigued about him. What was your? Do you remember what you wrote in that letter to try sort of entice him to agree with you? Did you, did you think that you had much of a chance of actually getting him to agree for you to write a book on him? Well, I I really wasn't sure because I thought other writers certainly must have had the idea and must have approached him about it. So I was I, I was kind of pessimistic about it. Mm-hmm. And really, all I did was, you know, I told him about my background. You know, that I'd grown up in Green Bay, that I knew quite a bit about Packer history, that I, you know, that I'd published this book, uh, which was by the way, called Who Was Who in American Sports. Mm. It's kind of like 1,500 obituaries is what it amounts <laughs> to. And, uh, and, and it was amazing. I, uh, I mailed the letter here in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He was, in, uh, he was living in St. Paul, Minnesota at the time. Mm. Uh, so I mailed the letter uh, here on a Tuesday. And the following Sunday afternoon, I get a phone call, and this voice says, "This is John McNally. You know me as Johnny Blood." So I'm saying, "Wow, he, you know, I got a, such a fast response. That's good." Yeah. Uh, now at the time, I was working at the newspaper here, and the next thing he said just absolutely floored me. He said, "I'm parked in front of the newspaper <laughs> office, but it's closed because it's Sunday. How do I get to your house from here?" <laughs> So he had got the letter, uh, booked a flight, rented a, a car in Boston, <laughs> and showed up virtually on my doorstep like five days later. <laughs> so so I, I was totally amazed. But you know what, as your book sort of details out, because you do sort of chronologically um, where you go from, you know, a little bit before and a bit of a preface, but then going from his birth all the way on. So when we really delve into your book and see who John Johnny Blood was, 
you see that he was kind of that vagabond at heart. He'd buy a motorbike and he'd go across with an 18-year-old married woman, yeah. you know, and that that's kind of who he was. But certainly you don't know that when you read that part in the book. So it is quite striking. But so he's talking on the phone. He arrives over at your house. Um, they say never meet your hero. But what were your first impressions when you opened the door and John Victor McNally was standing there looking at you? Well, I, I should say that I had met him when I when I was young. I, mm. I met him a couple of times, in fact. So I knew what he looked like. I had heard him, you know. Uh, and but I was. Uh, I think the thing that struck me was he looked so much younger than I expected. He was about seventy. Well, he uh, he would have been sixty nine mm. uh, when I met him, and he, he looked. He, he could have passed for fifty. He looked very young. He was in very good shape, you know. Yeah. And that really surprised me because I'd, you know, I'd met other uh, older football players, you know, retired guys who were in their fifties, sixties, seventies, and they always seemed to be kind of bulky, you know, heavy, yeah. you know, some of the muscle turned to fat. But he he was very trim, and he looked as if he could get out the field <laughs> then you know but you do say that don't you I mean he, he was at a Hall of Fame reunion and he was there with Hudson and Sammy Bach and you said that he could have been mistaken as one of their contemporaries because he was only a few pounds above his playing weight so yeah right so so physically then he looked quite young because that was certainly one thing that I had down to ask you was is you know what was his appearance like because there's a famous quote that he had uh, that you recount in your book about where they tried to, I guess, I think it was another Dame, right? They tried to get him to work out as a tackle. He said, no, they invite contact. I try to avoid it. But he's, yeah, he yeah. still would have got hit a lot. And there's a few cases in your book where he gets knocked out cold. Certainly the one that ends his career. Um, and he sort of decides, right, I've had enough. Um, so physically is one thing, but how sharp, because the thing is, he was a hellraiser, you know, he's he's the old style Colin Farrell style character, uh, not to sort of, you know, sully uh, Johnny Blood's image with uh, Colin Farrell, the actor, but certainly he had that sort of, you know, real Irish thing about him that he drank too much, he womanized too much, he didn't like authority, you know, he played in Green Bay of all places, so he's probably, you know, a block of ice frozen half to death. So it's amazing to me that he was in great physical shape, but mentally, how was he? Was he still quite with it after all these years? And because you do say, and I think in one sentence in the book about his memory was always quite good, but he sort of slipped up a little bit really later on in his life. Is, would that be a true assessment? Yeah, at the yeah at the time we were working on the book, he had uh, he had very good recall, and I I was able to uh, uh, you know I interviewed uh, a number of other people and. I never found anyone who 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 really contradicted anything he'd said. I mean, mm. he, he remembered stuff quite well. Um, in fact, when I checked back on uh, you know in uh, newspapers and things, microfilm, uh, if there was a discrepancy between what John said and what somebody else said, John was right like ninety percent of the time. That's amazing. And he and he was a, a very. Uh, uh, a very thoughtful person. That, that's one of the things that struck me about him. Sometimes I'd ask him something or touch on a subject, and he'd um, he wouldn't answer for a long time. Sometimes I'd think that you know maybe he just doesn't want to answer, but it's because he was thinking about it, you know, mm. and and sometimes thinking very deeply about it. And he he wasn't nearly as flamboyant at the time I knew him as, <laughs> as he probably had been earlier you know yeah 
because you know what as an Irishman we sort of get the reputation of being very emotionless I mean Sigmund Freud famously said you can psychoanalyze anybody but the Irish so I, I guess that that's an interesting insight is you know that he was so thoughtful now there was there was a part in the book and I'm kind of jumping around in the questions I guess a bit but about you know I'm just trying to get into the mind more so and and, and what you felt because I guess first off how much time did you spend with him and second off did you be able, were you able to get deep into the mind of of Johnny Blood? And the reason that I ask it is is because you say in your book that he wouldn't talk about his first wife. And I just when I read it, I sort of thought, well, why did he ever give a reason why he didn't? Was it a bad relationship? Was he did were there certain topics where he just wouldn't go there? Um, I don't know. I, I guess that fascinates me. Yeah, he 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 just really didn't want want to talk about it and I uh to, to be honest I didn't push for it either you know mm. he just he was uh, I think they were married for maybe seven or eight years maybe it was 10 years I'm really not sure at this point but it, it was just something he didn't want to talk about because th- that's what strikes me as well is that you say that you know he was searching for the answers and he was quite thoughtful but it's very apparent from a very early age at age four when he climbs out his window um, onto the roof of his house and he yeah. tells you I really don't know why I did it and that's understandable because at four years of age who knows why anybody does anything but then he follows it up by saying that it, it's probably for attention because that's the only reason that even later in life some of the stuff that he did the only way he can rationalise that in his own head is that he did it for attention I yeah. mean th- that seems quite sort of on the surface do you think that's true or do you think there was something else there with, with Johnny Blood that made him do the crazy things that he did. I think that was probably the crux of it. Uh, you know, he, he, he did say that would, you know, that would probably explain a lot of the things. And, uh, I think he did have, a uh, he, he was kind of, in a way he was kind of a shy person, but, um, I think he did have that demand for attention. You know, I've seen that. I've interviewed actors who were like that, you know, mm. who were, who were very shy off stage, uh, but once they got on the stage, then they can express themselves, you know. And I think maybe that was kind of the way he was. He could do it on the football field because he was a very flamboyant player, you know. He came mm-hmm. up with spectacular catches, and and uh, um, he was. Uh, Really, uh, the uh, Supreme Court Justice Byron White said at his uh, at Johnny Blood's induction of the Hall of Fame that he had the ability to to come up with the great play when one was needed. And so, yeah, I think that was pro- you know I, I didn't try to psychoanalyze him, you know, <laughs> but uh, I think he probably assessed himself pretty accurately when he said that. Yeah, and I guess a big part of his psyche and, and an awful lot of the reason why he was the way he was, I guess, people were put down to his ancestry. And I just want to know, as an Irishman more than anything else, because, Ralph, what you don't know about me is anybody that I have on the podcast, you know, even the, there was a player who played for the Packers, uh, Justin Prillo, he was like a third-string tight end. I used to say his name was Justin O'Prillo. I'd sort of crowbar him into being Irish. Um, and I, I like the fact that Green Bay... There's, an, there's a big Irish streak that runs through it and I spoke to Brett Hensel of the Packers Hall of Fame and he told me that because of the celebrations, the centenary celebrations, they're sort of delving into the very first Packers team and an awful lot of oh, them yeah. are a bunch of patties, right? So I'm sort of thinking to myself, Johnny Blood, uh, you say in the book that you know he's, he's proud to be Irish. 
how much of that Irishness came out in him and what I mean is is like did he ever talk about it much and was he proud of the fact that he was from Irish is that how he kind of identified himself he he was very proud of it that was one of the first things he said to me in, in fact he, he wrote it out on a piece of paper he said I'm 100% Irish mm. and he wrote out the the names the, the eight names you know and I, I can't remember them all but yeah uh, you know, his name was McNally. His mother was a Murphy, and there were uh, I think there was and McDuffs and, yeah. and you know, and he, he you know, he, and he wrote them out for me. I still have a sheet of paper in which he wrote them. Yeah. Uh, so that was uh, that was very important to him. He didn't he, he didn't dwell on it later, but he certainly made it a, a, a very strong point to begin with. You know, right at the beginning of our our relationship. I find that amazing because even I spoke to Larry McCarron on the podcast and he sort of when I spoke about my Irishness I guess being from Ireland living in Ireland and having a surname that's the third oldest Irish name you know that kind of runs through me very strong so when I mentioned that to Larry McCarron he said that he too they did this sort of DNA test thing and he's an awful lot of Irish background as well so I I like hearing that and that there's a good sort of you know stream of that that comes out I guess from um, some Americans who sort of identify with that so I guess oh, apparently yeah. it, it warms me inside what about you Ralph uh, it's completely off topic have you got any Irish in the background oh yeah I had an Irish grandfather uh, and uh, he, he he was married uh, to a Norwegian uh, woman named mm. Rose Anderson and every St. Patrick's Day he would uh, do a jig with her around the floor <laughs> singing my wild Irish rose <laughs> yeah I tell you we're also Irish we're a walking contradiction um, but uh, I guess that, that's kind of the way from from reading your book uh, you know what I, I, I like Johnny Blood and I think he's he's as amazing as I thought he would be but in a way I feel that he was kind of a, a bit of a trouble soul in the sense that uh, he was an incredibly smart man he could recite plays and poetry and had an interest in economics but from an early age, he could never seem to hold down an education in the sense that he was either getting expelled, he was womanizing at a very young age. Um, did he talk about that a lot? And did he sort of regret any of that stuff in his past? Because he went on, right, to, to get his degree and and all the rest. I mean, does he did he look back at his past or did he talk about it much to sort of say, you know, I, I should have done better? And was it always a problem with him, with authority? Was that really what the crux of it all was? Uh, he... He never he never said anything like that to me. No, um, I think in a way he was probably kind of spoiled because he really didn't have to earn a living. He he was left an annuity mm. uh, by his mother, and uh, you know at some point I I think football was his career, and once that career was over, uh, there wasn't really a career for him. Yeah, it's it's a bit of, it's a bit of an odd one, all right, because he goes from the annuity, um, and then he marries, I believe, um, a, a very wealthy woman, and becomes a, a dad to her three sons and all the rest. So it kind of seems like, you know, the the main passion in his life always was football, or something that he was he was extremely good at. But a really sad part of the book is when he talks about his father. Um, yeah. Did that have a big impact on him? Because you know that that's kind of why we sort of look at why he went into athletics because his dad always wanted him to do it. Um, yeah, and do you know what? It kind of it shows what type of stigma I guess there was around mental health back then. That his dad was said to be suffering from melancholia, and um, was how it was put. And then you know they, unfortunately, it ends up in a suicide, and they take his body out of the Apple River, the Apple River, right? Um, so 
I mean, did he talk about that much? Did he open up much about that? Now, as an Irishman, I guess that it's something that I sort of see us shutting down about, not really talking about. But did it have as big as an impact as I think it should have had on him? I I think it did. He uh, he he said uh, I remember he was in college at the time, mm. and uh, he said uh, uh, something to the fact that it was a blessing that he could go back to college after that to kind of. Uh, to kind of wash it, or never really wash it out of his mind, but you know, to to have a distraction from uh, uh, from the memory of of his father and what had happened to him, yeah, yeah, and uh, and, and and you know, he also said at some point that he, uh, well, he he expressed some guilt, you know, I, I, he said something like, you know, now uh, now he can see everything I do, he can see what a uh, I think he said SOB I am or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, um, I I think being an athlete was a way. You know, if if he thought or you know had the notion that his father was watching him, I think that was a way of may, maybe making some amends. You know. Yeah, and there's no better person to ask about this than yourself, not only about Johnny Blood, but also about the kind of how football was perceived then as well, but you covering um, Johnny and all of the famous sports people that you have uh, going back then. From, you know, meeting Jerry Kramer and listening to him speak, he talks about how a career in football, and from reading his book, um, you know, Instant Replay, Distant Replay, he talks yeah. about how, you know, being a football player as a career was kind of looked down upon. You know, people in college would look at you and sort of, they they turn their nose up at you, you know. Was that the way it was? It, certainly, that surely was the way it was when Johnny was playing, was it? That when you know when he decided to be a football player, it he continued to sort of almost be seen as the black sheep in the family until he reached that success. Would would that be an accurate assessment of what it would be, would have been like to be a career football player back then? Oh yeah, that that was definitely so. It, it was not just football; it was also baseball. They were mm. looked on as you know the best hotels wouldn't take them. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I, there's there's a story in the book about the time they went to the Atherton Hotel in Cleveland, and it, it was a show business hotel. And mm. of course, a lot of hotels wouldn't take showbiz people either. So uh, yeah. And uh, you know when, when that was when he was playing with the Duluth Eskimos, and uh, they were staying at the Atherton Hotel along with the Marx Brothers and. Uh, uh, and Max Sennett's troopers. So, yeah. You know, and they were all, you know, disreputable. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, they, it was not... Uh, and, and, of course, they didn't get paid all that much either. You know, nowadays, they're uh, obviously, they're very wealthy guys, and they, mm. you know, they buy big houses, and they drive flamboyant cars, you know, and uh, that wasn't the case in those days. Yeah, and I, I guess the man who tried to change all of that and to really make the team fly in style was Curly Lambeau. I believe he was the first of his type to, you know, have first class seats on trains, to fly by plane, to, you know, stay in the best hotels. And you tell the story about how they wanted to cover Johnny Blood in the story and call him the hobo halfback. And Curly interjected and said, I'm not having you say that about one of my players. I play, I pay you fairly well. So yeah. Curly Lambeau, fascinating story. Um, if people go to YouTube and, and search your name, they can see your you know sh short speech to your high school reunion, and someone asks you, um, I, I think about actually is that about Vince Lombardi? But you sort of talk about Curly Lambeau a little bit, and you tell a really funny story that if people want to hear about it, it's it just fascinates me. It's in the book as well. But Curly Lambeau as a man, 
you explore that kind of in your book to say that some people said that he was quite good and he was almost Vince Lombardi-esque where, you know, if you trained, you had to train hard. And then on the flip side of that, you had, you know, Johnny Blood correcting some of his plays that he couldn't possibly run the plays that he was trying to draw up. And he was quite naive because, and I can't remember who it was, had said that he only had one year at Notre Dame before he dropped out and moved back to Green Bay to go on and set up the Packers. What's your summation then of Curly Lambeau after reading both sides of the story? Do you think, you know, he's obviously, we love him. It's it's the Lambeau feel, it's it's the history. But an honest assessment of the man, was he as knowledgeable as he sort of, you know, is is in the legend, let's say? Well, he was, uh, as you said, he, he only played college football for one year. Mm. All he knew from a coaching standpoint and a strategic and tactical standpoint was that one year of playing in, in uh, Newt and it was Newt Rockney's first year as a coach. Yeah. Uh, so he knew the, uh, the Notre Dame style, which was shifting the Notre Dame shift and the Notre Dame box and so forth. Um, and that's, that's all he knew. So that's how the Packers played. And uh, I think his downfall in the late 40s was that he he didn't know all the other NFL teams were adopting the T formation, mm. and he didn't know how to do it. He, the, the Packers became a very inept team as a, as a T formation team because that he just didn't know that, you know. Yeah. He hired an assistant coach to help him, but uh, uh, and that at that point. Uh, uh, and I know this mostly from older people, from my dad and people that my dad worked with. Lambo had really become very, uh, very bound up in his ego, and you know, as far as he was concerned, he was the Packers, you know. Yeah. And uh, and he couldn't uh, he couldn't adapt, frankly. And uh, I'd, I'd say the same thing about George Hallis. Uh, Lambo was no, it was a great motivator. Hallis was a great motivator, mm. but Hallis also he he played at the University of Illinois, which used the old T formation, and the Bears always played that T formation, mm. but it was old style, you know. And uh, and finally he brought in another coach. Uh, uh, I can't remember Jones was his name. I can't remember his first name. The Packers, uh, the the Bears actually won their their first championship under Ralph, Ralph Jones. I couldn't remember his first name. It's the same as mine. <laughs> uh, but he brought in this uh, Ralph Jones to uh, to install an updated version of the T formation because yeah. Hallis didn't know how to do it. You know. It's incredible. And I guess the same is still going on now. You'll see some of the older coaches, Sean McVeigh now for the Rams comes in, you know, the guy's just over 30 and he's doing incredible things. So I guess, yeah. you know, it's some things just don't change, I guess, Ralph, right? They just keep, the cycle keeps going. But if we look at a man like Curly Lambeau, a guy full of ego, and then you look at Johnny Blood, who was a free spirit, who didn't really, you know, like there's, there's that incredible story that you tell in that YouTube speech and also contained in the book. Um, about the the courtyard and the twelve foot jump, which we won't go into, I guess, because uh, <laughs> let let people read it for themselves, I guess, because you'll do it justice in your book. I won't. How did the two of them get along? What you know, was it a love hate relationship? Because we we see Lambo just trying to get rid of him for a while, I guess, and then bringing him back and then letting him go and all the rest. So and then of course Johnny meets up with him after all the playing career is over and has 
has a dance with him or whatever you know they go off and they they spend the night um having a dance and and enjoying themselves having a few drinks and that's the side that johnny said he never saw curly lambo so i guess it's kind of clear from your book that they didn't socialize was was johnny just a thorn in curly's side and did johnny have an awful lot of good things or bad things to say about curly when you were speaking with him uh well the the thing that happened was that the packer fans loved johnny blood and he, he he said to me at some point, I, I think I probably had a drink with every Packer fan <laughs> at one time or another. So, of yeah. course, they loved me. And uh, uh, so he was a very popular guy. And Lambeau, uh, from what I was told, just didn't like that. You know, he mm. he wanted to get the attention. He, and so uh, quite he'd, he'd, he'd put John on the bench. And... Uh, then the Packer fans would start chanting, we want blood, which, you know, was not the, uh, <laughs> for the gladiators it's because they wanted Johnny blood in the game, you know? Yeah. So, and uh, so they had that going back and forth that, you know, Lambo thought he was getting too much attention. And, uh, uh, but at the same time he needed him, you know? So yeah. he, uh, as you said, he, he let him go, but then he brought him back for another championship, you know? It's it's incredible as well. You tell a story how Johnny gets his own back at Lambo. Lambo gives him uh, certain tactics in a game, and Johnny just completely goes against him twice, and it ends yeah. up being. Uh, and again, I'm not going to go into the story. I'll leave people to read the book about it. Uh, it's it's really great. And again, from what you tell me now, and to have more color on it, the fact that Lambo was sort of effectively kind of became an egomaniac at the end, which is I think is you know that is known. Um, it's amazing to say that uh, you know Johnny remained on the team with that but i guess it just proves your point that he really needed him so you know johnny played for a couple of teams um he got his famous johnny blood name off a billboard you know going to try try out for teams and all the rest um i guess that story is known but who did when you spoke to johnny and again it's it's very hard to i suppose to to, because you bring us along in the car with you when when you write about you know the two he's talking or whatever but did you speak to Johnny about, uh, you know, who he's played with in the past? It is mentioned a little bit in the book. He sort of mentions players who shouldn't, shouldn't be in the in the Hall of Fame. Who did he hold in high regard? And from you talking to some of the other greats about Johnny, how did those great players see him also? Uh, well, he, he talked, uh, he, uh, it was when we went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1973, which was the 10th anniversary, hmm. uh, where I got a chance to interview some people. Um, and there, there was a late night gathering at some point, uh, with the, I think it was the assistant director of the pro football hall of fame and, and some of the, and Johnny and George Hallis and, uh, Red Grange was there, Ernie Nevers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the, the hall of fame was interested in their opinions on who, which old time players should be in the hall of fame, maybe, you know? Yeah that weren't there. And um, John spoke, uh, uh, one guy he mentioned who's really kind of forgotten, even by a lot of Packer fans, I think was Red Dunn, Mm. who was uh, the Packers' chief passer. Um, And he said, uh, John said at the time, Benny Friedman of the Giants was considered the the first great passer in, in NFL history. Yeah. But he said every time we played the Giants, Red Dunn outplayed Friedman. 
And, uh, and uh, he also mentioned two other former teammates who are not in the Hall of Fame. And a, and a lot of members of the Pro Football Researchers Association should be. Those are Levy Dillwig, yeah. uh, who was an end, and, and uh, Vern Llewellyn, who was a halfback and a great punter. And uh, another guy that came up uh, in those conversations was a guy named Tony Latone, who who was a fullback, who's also not in the, still not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's it's amazing as well because I saw um, and the the painful part about it is that there's not an awful lot, and that's why your book again is fascinating, um, is because you spoke to him and you got to spend time with him and countless hours with him and actually get his real opinion because I found it very hard to find any type of video footage of, of Johnny, I can't find any, and it says in your book too that it has the picture, the only picture of Johnny Blood, Johnny Blood playing football. From all of your research, is that, does that, is that still true? I mean, is there still only one picture surviving of him playing football and no video footage of him playing football? Is that right? There is a, there is a clip on YouTube uh, of the 1936 championship game Mm. between the Packers and the Redskins. It, and it's it's kind of funny because there's they don't really tell you much about what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's brief, you know, it, it just shows a, a few plays from the game, but it does show him catching a uh 52-yard pass that uh really put the game uh, turned the game around. I think I believe the Packers were winning 14 to 7 at the time and mm. uh and that pass uh, set up the Packers' touchdown that made it twenty-one to seven, pretty much sealed the game. So you can see that on YouTube. Yeah, but that, that's the only one I know of. Which is such a shame, again, because it's something that I'd love to to delve into. But the more I read your book, and the more I sort of got into what type of man he was, I try to imagine if he was around and he was a guy in my life. Um, you know how you'd see him and I guess we look at the stories and he's a lovable rogue and he's a bit of a legend and he says he's drank with everybody and he's a fan favorite did you ever get the impression from speaking to other people or even by speaking to Johnny himself is that by the way that he lived his life you know he was perpetually broke Um, you know he had to keep getting that's why he was the, the vagabond halfback he had to sort of jump on trains getting free rides did you ever yeah. do you ever rub people's backs up the wrong way? I mean, did did, did anybody look at him and sort of you know get annoyed by him uh, with his sort of womanizing ways or carefree ways, or did he still hold that charisma even when you met him? That even though he got up to the things he did, he got away with it because of who he was. Yeah, I think a coach or two might <laughs> might have been <laughs> upset, him. but uh, uh, you know, I interviewed. Uh, Actually, long before I met Johnny Blood, I interviewed Cal Hubbard mm. uh, uh, because at at the time I I was in Boston. Cal Hubbard was the supervisor of American League umpires in baseball, and his office was in Boston. Yeah, and so I uh, I went up. I interviewed him for about two hours, and he was. Uh, he was outspoken about Johnny Blood, about what a great player he was, and he never expressed anything like that. You know, and uh, I also interviewed, uh, and, and it was interesting with John because he would he would introduce me to the person, but then he would leave us alone. He wouldn't sit there, you know, uh, yeah. and, and eavesdrop on the conversation. And so I interviewed Mike Michalski, who's also in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, was a guard on those Packer teams. Incidentally, 
Johnny Blood and Mike Machalski, who was a guard, were the only two people who played for all four of the first championship teams, the first Packer championship teams. Wow. Um, but I interviewed Machalski, who lived just outside Green Bay in a suburb called De Pere, and I, I interviewed him for some time, and he, he was also, you know, um, had all good things to say. Ernie Nevers was uh, talking about that crazy season of the Duluth Eskimos when they played, you know, 28 games on the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he said, I, I don't think we could have done it without Johnny Blood, but he kept us in such good spirits, you know, and when we were feeling down and, you know, tired, he'd he'd do something. He'd make a joke. He'd, he'd uh, do a jig, you know, he'd dance <laughs> around and everybody would be laughing and, you know, suddenly we'd all feel good again, you know, so... Uh, so I, I think uh, teammates really, you know, from from that experience, I'd say, yeah, they they liked him, you know. And that's what I find amazing is that he seemed like a guy who, as as you've just said, I mean, he could, you know, raise your spirits. A fantastic player, uh, even when he was coaching, he used to sub himself into the game, and sort of, I think he said to Art Rooney once, right? There's your game for your Art. I think it was the first or maybe, maybe I've got this wrong from memory, even though I've just read the book. Uh, I, I think he came in and he caught two touchdowns in a game. And I think he went out and said, well, there's your game for you. But Art he, Rooney was... He, actually, what, if I may interrupt, what happened yeah. was he, re, he he came in. As I recall, they led early in the game and then the score was tied. And then John put himself in after the... The touchdown that tied the game, and he returned the kickoff ninety-two <laughs> yards. <for a> wow! <laughs> and yeah. he was like thirty-four years old at the time. You know? That's and then, yeah, he went back and he, he said to Rooney, "There's your game, Art." Amazing. And it was. But you spoke to Art, and you you interviewed him, I believe, at the Hall of Fame meeting, where you tell this yep. glorious story about how he actually got into that meeting. Uh, you shouldn't have got in because you only was Hall of Fame players. And again, yeah. Johnny comes up with a pretty uh, hilarious quip um, when Pete Rosell enters the room. But you, you speak to Art there. I guess that's the first inclination that I get in the book where when you're talking to somebody, they give the impression that they weren't too impressed by by him, I guess. And, and you know, and it goes both ways, right, that Johnny says that Art just wanted to be down at the horses all the time. And, and Art says that, you know, Johnny was good for giving a few motivational phrases, but he didn't have a whole lot of coaching experience in him, you know, to come up with the plays. But that seems at odds to what people say early in his career when he's going up and correcting the plays. And he was the only one to have, uh, you know, the, the moxie to get up onto the chalkboard and to overrule Curly Lambeau effectively with a play. What's the truth there from your perspective as to how he was as a coach? Was it just the changes in the team or was something that Art Rooney said that that ring through? Uh, well, I, I suspect he wasn't really cut out to be a coach. And he, he kind of said that to me at some point, that his problem as a coach was that he he worried too much about the guys who weren't very good. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, uh, that's not quite what he said, but it, it, was, it was something like that. And... Uh, and instead of focusing on the players who could really win a game for him, he got kind of caught up in, in uh, you know, trying to do too much with the players who weren't going to help win many games. Um, but uh, I, I think he probably wasn't really good head coach material. Mm. But at the same time, you know, he told me, and I, I kind of detail it in the book, he talked about how 
the the roster just kept changing because Rooney would lose money at the track and he'd sell a player. <laughs> and and when I went through the the rosters of the Pittsburgh team in those years, I could see what was happening. You know, mm. and by by uh, you know halfway through the season, Rooney had sold the whole starting backfield. It's <laughs> incredible. To the point where John had to play fullback, which he had never played before in his entire career, uh, because he didn't have anybody else on the roster. <laughs> he didn't have a fullback on the roster. Yeah. And so I could see that you know that, that was working against him too. So I, I, I think it's you know I, th- I think there's truth on both sides. Yeah, and it, it was a it was a nice insight. And again, you do some incredible research to show it was kind of well from my perspective anyway. It just seemed like an impossible task. It's an uphill battle. I think we've all worked in jobs where sometimes the staff turnover is high, and it's almost impossible to get anything done. And just the fact that his his sort of compassion side comes out, I guess, because he focuses on what he calls the late bloomers to try to get them to perform when really, you know, from what what appears to me, especially from you talk about his short-lived boxing career, and it's not short-lived in the way that people might imagine when when I say that, and again... Um, if if that that's a reason in itself to buy the book is that that story just blew me away I guess but it seemed like he was always at athletically gifted he was never a late bloomer in that regard he was extremely fast um you know he's he was big for his size he took to boxing and did what he did and it seemed to me that maybe he was focused on the wrong thing is that really he was kind of he was it was a freak of nature to me athletically anyway to see the stuff that he could do um yeah. on such short notice but. I guess the the sad part about it is is that you go through this process with him, uh, you spend umpteen amount of time to him, and then he gives you that letter where he doesn't want you to publish the book. How long did you actually spend, do you think, uh, with Johnny Blood writing this book? And as an author in your head, I mean, because for me, I'd sort of go, okay, I've got a year to write the book. I'd sit down, do all my research, and, and that'd be how it worked. It seemed like you were on and off with, with Johnny Blood meeting with him for was it months or years? And, you know, kind of how was that process for you? Well, it was pretty much up to John what what we did. You know, he, he was still a vagabond. <laughs> although he, he wasn't a halfback anymore. Yeah. But he would come, uh, that first visit he paid here, uh, as I had said, he arrived on a Sunday afternoon and I, uh, he left the following Saturday or Sunday. And that was kind of the pattern. He'd he'd give me a call, and uh, he'd say, uh, like maybe two three days in advance, he'd say, you know, I'm gonna I want to come to New Bedford, you know, on Tuesday, mm. and I'll spend three four days. Does that work for you? And I'd say, yeah, of course. I was working at the time. Yeah. Uh, so on those occasions, my my time with him was limited. Um, but we did spend a week traveling. Uh, which was a really interesting experience. I, I think of it as the Johnny Blood Trail. <laughs> we started in Green Bay, and uh, then we drove out to um, his birthplace, New Richmond, Wisconsin, and we went to uh, we visited River Falls, uh, now River Falls, well River Falls State College or whatever it is, which was the first college we went to. Uh, we went to St. John's University, which was his second college. Um, we went to, well, we, we met with a, a guy named Ernie Flegel in Minneapolis, which is where I, I got the story about John's boxing career, yeah. which I had never heard of before. 
I, I don't think any word of it had ever appeared in print before. And the only reason I knew about it was that John said, oh, we have to talk to Ernie Flegel about, you know, the time I had the boxing match. And, <laughs> so, and then we went north from there to Duluth, where I interviewed Ole Hogsrud, the who'd been the owner-manager of the uh, Duluth Eskimo. We made a little side trip up to International Falls, Minnesota, to visit uh, Bronco Nikursky. Wow which was not part of the book. It was part of a uh, project John was working on to get a pension plan for old-time football players. And then we went over to Ironwood, Michigan, which is where he actually uh, became a professional football player, but it was a semi-pro team. Hmm. And then down to Milwaukee, where he he, uh, first played in the NFL with the Milwaukee Badgers and then back up to Green Bay. So... And I, uh, I I did a lot of interviewing of John on that trip, or, or not more like conversational, you know. I had a tape recorder with me, and you know I'd be sitting in the passenger seat, and we'd have a conversation as we drove along. Uh, but I, I couldn't tell you how many hours we spent. He probably visited here uh, over a period of four four and a half years. Uh, he probably visited here, oh, I'm going to say 30 times, 25, 30 times for, you know, sometimes three days at a time, sometimes a week at a time. Yeah. And then we also spent uh, four days together at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. So we we got to know one another pretty well. I think we became, we really became good friends in the process. You know, I, I thought of him as a good friend. And I hope he thought the same of me. And what what was the approach then to interviewing him? Was it that sort of laid back and casual? Did you ever have to assign a time with him and say, okay, John, now we're going to talk about this? Or would you just have those conversations and just record what you felt was necessary? Uh, Well, when we were really... See, as an interviewer, uh, I did a lot of interviewing in the newspaper business, mm. and I always tried to approach it as a conversation, not a Q&A kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, but I would, you know, sometimes I'd sit down. We we had outlined the chapters. That was the first thing we did. Yeah. He and I at, at that first meeting, we sat down, and we outlined. We even came up with the chapter titles for the most part. And that stayed really, I think, unchanged. I, I don't think we made any changes in that. Uh, but sometimes I would sit down with them and say, "Well, you know, let's get to chapter seven. We really, you know, we really haven't <laughs> talked about some of this stuff in chapter seven. And he'd say, "Yeah, okay," and you know, and then we we talk about that. Yeah. But for the most part, it was pretty much free form. And quite often, something would pop into his head and he'd just start telling me about something, you know, that he had, he had just occurred to him. So. And have you went back since, Ralph, and listened to any of those tape recordings that Andy still have them? I think I have one. Uh, part of the problem was that at the time, I didn't have much money and I think I only had one tape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I would, you know, uh, when the tape got full, I had a portable typewriter mm. when we were traveling around and I would sit down, I would transcribe the the notes. So I have those transcriptions. Uh, somewhere I have a tape, but it's really of the the interview with Ole Hogsrud mostly in in Duluth that uh, that I have on tape, which was a very interesting experience. 
experience. And I guess the, the final question for you, um, well, the second last one, because I guess the last one is how can people get, a, get their hands on your book, but what impact did he have on you? Uh, boy, that's a good question. I came away really with with a lot of respect for him as as a person. And the thing that really impressed me about him was his, his intelligence. He, uh, we did a lot of talking about stuff that had nothing to do with football. Um, as I think I said, you know, I live in New Bedford. This is the home of the Whaling Museum. This is where Herman Melville shipped from. Mm. And uh, in fact, when uh, at some point I asked Jahan, uh, John had mentioned a couple of guys, uh, Jim Klobuchar of the uh, Minneapolis uh, Star Tribune and Jim Murray of the Los Angeles Times. And I think somebody in New York had wanted to to uh, do a biography with him and he turned them all down. Mm. So at some point after we got to know one another pretty well, I said, well, why did you agree to do this with me? And he said, well, really, there are two reasons. Uh, first, you grew up in Green Bay. You know Packer history, so I don't have to go into all that with you. You you know it. So, yeah. And the second thing is, you live in New Bedford. I'm a big fan of Herman Mill. I always wanted to visit the Whaling Museum. <laughs> And, and in fact, the, the day after his arrival here, we went to the Whaling Museum because yeah. he, he had to see it. A, a funny little side note from that, they they have a, a half-scale model of a whaling ship. Yeah. And there's a sign that says, please do not climb the rigging. <laughs> and so John looked at that sign. He said, I guess they knew I was coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Real quick. But... But we talked, you know, we talked about Moby Dick. We we talked about, you know, a book called The Meaning of Meaning and all sorts of stuff like that. And I was uh, I was really impressed with how well read he was and how much thinking he'd done about what he had read. And that that impressed the hell out of me. Yeah, and I know said so that was my last question, but again, I just have to ask this. It just appears that this book wasn't enough for me. I could have read a, a book about seven times as long. Did you ever speak to him and you had more things to put in the book, but you didn't because you felt that it would give a different tone to the book? Or did he ever tell you something and then, like he'd said to you, don't publish this when I'm still alive, that he said to you, oh, please don't include that in the book. I don't want people to know. No, he never did that. He, In fact, he never... Uh... He never asked me to change anything except in in the, a couple cases of factual error. Mm. I showed him, you know, I, I would talk to him afterward, and I showed him, you know, stuff I'd written, and never ever did he. the The only thing he did was shoot down some of the myths. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really, I mean, there were a couple stories that I mentioned to him, and he saw that never happened. That's that's incredible that he would say no because if it was me I'd be like absolutely I'd be embellishing them instead of shooting them down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And I I thought uh, some of the stories must have been embellished, and you know a couple of them turned out weren't true at all. In fact, uh, I talked to Cliff Crystal. Uh, I was in Green Bay about a year ago, and uh, a year ago June, and and I talked with Cliff Crystal, and he asked me. He said, "Do you think all those stories can be true?" And I said, you know, I think they are because 
if it wasn't true, he told me. Yeah. He said, don't even mention that in, in the book, you know, because it's absolutely not true. Or he would correct it, you know. Yeah. That's incredible. That's unbelievable. Do you know what, Ralph? I'd have you on for another 14 hours just talking about your time <laughs> with Johnny Blood. But if anybody wants to get close to the story, they can pick up a copy of Vagabond Halfback, the saga of Johnny Blood McNally by Ralph Hickok. It's a, it's a fantastic read. And Ralph, the best place uh, to get this would be Amazon. Is that right? Uh, yeah, right on Amazon. As I said, it was published through CreateSpace. I th- I guess CreateSpace used to have its own separate store, and I don't think they do have it anymore. So uh, yeah, uh, but it is on Amazon, and I I have an Amazon page which lists my other books. Uh, um, but uh, um, the only other book of mine which is still in print is a, a bibliography of books about football, which. Uh, is kind of you know obviously rather specialized not many people want it <laughs> well there's a few there's a few anoraks over here and to sort of give people the good news when i ordered this in ireland usually with books like this you have to sort of depend on it to come over from the states that's not the case it came from amazon.co.uk so i was able to get it within oh, yeah a couple of days and i'd already devoured it within two and was just yearning for more so ralph I have to say, you've been on with me for a very, very long time now. Um, I'm very conscious. And I have to thank you, obviously, from the bottom of my heart. First off, uh, for going to all the effort uh, to to meet uh, John McNally, to get his story, to put it so expertly in a book for everybody to enjoy and for coming on the podcast and, and talking with us and all of all of the people here in the UK, Ireland, Europe. And we have a lot of listeners in the States as well. Um, so, Ralph, thanks so much. Well, thank you, Steve. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. It's always fun talking about it.